We work through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, books of the Bible because we believe that every single word of God is inspired and is profitable for us spiritually, morally, in our families, at our work, everywhere. And so we are beginning in the Gospel of John this morning, and I just want to read the first three verses from the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Do you pray with me? Father, we come before You this morning after reading these words and we confess, Lord, that who You are and what You have done is is often a work and an idea that our minds can barely grasp. That the eternal God and Maker of all things has always existed as the Word and as the Father. And that you have entered into this creation by your Son to redeem a fallen creation and us as sinners. This is a truth that many of us have heard very many times, but it is a truth that nonetheless still stuns us. Father, I pray that as we begin going through this Gospel, we see clearly the glory of Christ. And in seeing His glory, we see the glory of God. And we become a people who in everything we do, are always worshiping. Father, I pray that we would be transformed by these words and that if there is anyone here that does not know You and does not honor Your Son, that through these words and through the good news of the Gospel of John, they might know You. And so, Father, I pray that You be with us, that You give to us Your Spirit this morning. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I am very excited personally about beginning to work through this Gospel of John. It is, of course, out of the four Gospels, very unique among them. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, you will find that although there are many differences between them, there are as well many, many similarities. Probably the most obvious of these similarities 
is the shared accounts that they have of the miracles and the discourses of Jesus. The transfiguration, the feeding of the 5,000, healing the sick and the demon-possessed, the parables, and, and the list could go on. There are many similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John is unique in that many of these accounts are not found in his Gospel. He did not see it necessary to record these accounts. But it is unique also in the way it begins. Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin by focusing, we might say, on the earthly existence of Jesus and His humanity, His birth, His baptism, His temptations. That's how all three of them begin. But John, in his Gospel, begins, as it were, by giving us a divine perspective on who this Jesus is. He wants us to know who Jesus truly was and who Jesus truly is from the very beginning, from the outset of the Gospel. The first 18 verses of this Gospel is a kind of prologue. And as such, it it introduces us to what we can expect His Gospel to be about as we read through it. It introduces us in these first 18 verses to the themes of light and darkness. Jesus as the eternal life and the giver of life. Jesus as the eternal, pre-existent Son of God. It introduces us to the theme of the sovereignty of God in salvation. That He controls and He rules over every aspect of salvation. It introduces us to the themes of glory. You find glory mentioned all throughout this Gospel. And the themes of grace. And the themes of truth. These are all found in the beginning of the Gospel. And all of these themes being in the beginning are then unpacked for us specifically in the person of Jesus throughout the rest of the Gospel. So he begins with these great themes and then we see them taking place in the person of Jesus as the chapters go on. So John, John wants us to see Jesus from the very beginning in a heavenly light. We begin in this Gospel seeing Jesus not primarily as the descendant of David, not primarily as the descendant of Abraham, or even as the descendant of Adam, though He is all those things. We see Him as Adam's Creator, and therefore as our Creator and our God. And so this is one of the reasons why I am very excited about going through this Gospel in particular. It's exalted presentation of Christ lifts us into the heavens 
so that our posture as we move through the Gospel is always one of worship. Another reason I'm excited about this Gospel in particular is because of its simplicity and, at the same time, its complexity. Its simplicity and its complexity. It is, at the same time, one of the easiest books to understand and the deepest. The message of John 3.16, for example, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, that message, at the same time, can be grasped by, by the most simple child And it can humble the greatest and most profound theologian simultaneously. In the first three verses we're going to look at this morning, who can argue that as you read these verses, the message of them is not sufficiently clear? What he's trying to communicate is not sufficiently clear. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The grammar is clear. Jesus is both God and His own person distinct from God the Father. That message is clear and simple. But the implications of that message are very profound and deep. A window, as it were, gazing into the very divine nature of the triune God. Clear, simple, yet also complex. In this Gospel, you can either swim on the surface or you can plunge into the depths. It's all there. But finally... I'm excited about going through this Gospel because this Gospel in particular was the one I was reading when God made the light of His glory shine in my heart. This was the Gospel that He used to to reveal who Jesus was to me personally very clearly. This was the Gospel I was reading When God gave me ears to hear the Gospel and eyes to see who Jesus really is, and therefore, when by the divine and miraculous work of the Spirit of God, I experienced conversion. Real conversion. And my prayer is that by going through this book with you, Those of you who are now, as I was then, when I first began reading the Gospel, will, by the grace of God, experience that same conversion. And those of you who are, by that same grace, children of God now, my prayer is that for you, your roots in Christ, will grow deeper and deeper 
And the will of Jesus revealed in this gospel for you to abide in Him, to remain in Him, will be fulfilled. This is, this prayer, this desire, is in fact the very reason why John wrote this gospel. This is the purpose. This is his intentions of communicating these truths about Jesus. If you go to John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, John very clearly gives to us his purpose statement. He writes this gospel, and then at the end of it, he says, This is why I wrote it. And he says there, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Some of those are going to be found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Many others are not even recorded. But he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have eternal life. His purpose here is both evangelistic and pastoral. Evangelistic and pastoral. Evangelistically, if you do not believe that the promised Christ prophesied about by the Old Testament prophets is Jesus. If you do not believe that God has a Son and that this Son has eternally existed as the Son of God and that this Son is Jesus of Nazareth. And if you do not trust that this Jesus has the authority and the power to grant to you eternal life in the presence of God forever, John wrote this Gospel for you. He wrote this Gospel so that that might be true of you. He wants you to believe these propositions about who Jesus is with your mind. And He wants your will and affections to be submitted to Christ because He knows by personal experience and by witness that it is through this Jesus that you might have eternal life. He's looking out for your good. So this is His aim evangelistically. Pastorally, The belief He aims for you to have through His Gospel is not a one-time decision. It is not a belief that lasts for a period of time and wanes when life gets busy or when discipleship becomes inconvenient or even even when you suffer. This belief is not a single, one-time decision. 
The belief he refers to is an abiding belief. When John says that by believing you may have life, the action of that verb believing there describes an ongoing and continual action. Literally, you could, you could translate it by continually believing to the end you might have eternal life. His gospel is not just aimed at getting someone to believe in Jesus, but at keeping them in Jesus to the end. He takes, John does, very seriously Jesus' warnings that believers must remain in Him. He records for us Jesus' words in John 15.6 that says, If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So this gospel, this gospel is not just for the unbeliever. It's not just an evangelistic gospel. This gospel is for you. It's for the church. It is so that our trust in and love for Christ and our love for one another, our love for His body might increase by the power of the Spirit so that ultimately we might together obtain eternal life. So in the first 18 verses, John sets the stage for us. He gives us an introduction to who Jesus is and where His Gospel is going. Since the prologue, since this introduction, these first 18 verses, is so crucial to understanding this gospel, and since it gives us glasses, in a sense, through which to read the gospel, we're going to spend probably a few weeks in it. Three or four. Then afterwards, we'll pick up the pace. We'll, We'll go a little bit quicker. We'll cover more sections at a time. So we'll begin slow. We'll move a little bit quicker, mainly so that we can get the main ideas of each major section of Scripture. But this morning, we begin with just these first three verses. Because in these verses, John wants us to see and know from the outset a jaw-dropping truth about Jesus. Namely, that this man that you've heard about, that his his readers have heard about, this man who he refers to here as the Word, this Jesus who John even writes about in his first letter, and he says there in 1 John, we have seen Him with our own eyes, we have looked on Him, we've heard Him speak to us with our ears, we have even touched Him physically, we've ate with Him. This Jesus, this man, is none other than our Creator. He's God. Don't let the fact 
that you may have believed this truth for some time rob you of the awe-inspiring nature of that claim. John, you'll remember, is a Jew. He's a monotheist. He believes there is only one God. One God alone. He grew up in the synagogues repeating over and over the Hebrew Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a claim to the fact that there is only one God and all other gods are idols. This is what he's been trained in. And yet, this claim he is making does not change that. It does not change the fact that he only believes in one God. Yet, he is here very clearly and boldly saying, again with words that really couldn't be written any clearer, Jesus, this man, is that Creator. He is that God. And he makes this very clear first by starting with the pre-existence of Jesus. Something that we, we saw several weeks ago when we looked at John 17. But this is where he begins. And again, you see that theme reoccurring. The pre-existence of Jesus already in the Gospel. This is where he begins. He says, in the beginning was the Word. As I said a little bit ago, the Word is a title that John uses to describe Jesus, to refer to Jesus. It's a title that allows him to closely identify Jesus with God and God's revelation to us while also distinguishing Him from God the Father. But notice, notice how the sentence begins. In the beginning. This is not by accident. This is intended to draw your minds all the way back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The point is that the only thing that preceded heaven and earth, according to Genesis 1.1, was God. He brought them into existence. There is a beginning only because God made it so. And John is giving us that picture, only with a twist. In the beginning was the Word. When you think of God eternally existing and demonstrating His power through the seven days of creation, John is saying, think with your minds, Jesus. This man. Because we are to see Jesus as the Creator who made everything, the point cannot be missed that in some sense, Jesus is to be identified with God. Which we're going to look at some more in just a second. But first, notice the point. Jesus, as the Word, has always existed, which is only the characteristic found in the Creator. Himself. But as John continues, 
He also wants to distinguish Jesus, the Word, from God. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. God here, this clause, refers to the Father. God the Father. In fact, most cases throughout the New Testament, when you come across the word God, nine times out of ten, it's shorthand as a reference to the Father. And when you come across the word Lord, it's shorthand for Jesus, the Son. God the Father, Jesus, Lord and Son. So here, John is saying that the Word was with the Father. There's two distinct personalities here. right? Two clear personalities. To be with someone requires there to be at least two. The point is that Jesus and the Father are not the same person. They can be distinguished. And if they are not recognized as being distinct persons, we commit the error of blending them together and teach and believe a false doctrine of God and therefore we worship an idol. That's how clear this needs to be. Blending them together is what something like the oneness Pentecostals would do. They say essentially that there is one God and He appears in different forms. Sometimes He is the Father. Sometimes He is the Son. Sometimes He is the Holy Spirit. If you've perhaps ever heard an analogy given to explain the doctrine of the Trinity you've probably heard an analogy that's heretical as well. So for example, the often used analogy about God being like water. He can appear as a liquid, or He can appear as a gas, or a solid. Right? That's wrong. Don't use that analogy. In fact, the best advice I can give you is if you ever want to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, or understand it more fully, don't use analogies. They're not going to be helpful. Just say what the Scriptures say. Those analogies and what, again, oneness Pentecostals teach is an ancient heresy known as modalism. This is something that the church had to deal with a long time ago. And John is wanting us not to be modalists. And and not to be oneness Pentecostals. He is not saying that the Word and the Father are just two appearances or manifestations of God. He is saying that at the same exact time, they are both the Father and the Son, one God. And he's saying this very clearly. In fact, the grammar... The grammar he uses couldn't make it any clearer. I don't think you could use any fewer words. The Word was with 
God. They are at the same time distinct. Right? Going back to the analogy, if you're using the analogy of liquid, gas, and solid, water right, can't be both things at once. It's either a liquid or it's a gas. It's not going to be both. This here, as well, is not the only important point that John wants to make to distinguish the two for us. Not only does John want to distinguish Jesus from God the Father, but he also wants to identify Jesus as God and make that clear. There is a distinction that can be made, but nevertheless, Jesus, the Word, is God. He says... Not only was the Word with God, but, he goes on, and the Word was God. That is, His being, His essence, what makes Him who He is by nature is defined as God. The essence, right, of who I am, the essence of who you are, your nature is human. You are made in the image of God. John is saying here, his nature, who he is in himself, is God. Jesus is fully God. Distinct from God the Father, yes, but fully God. In fact, he is so much so God, that if you do not worship him, Jesus... You do not worship God. You do not worship Him in just a different way. What He's saying is that you don't worship God if you don't worship Jesus. Let me say that one more time. If you do not worship Jesus, you do not worship God. I think this, today is an intolerable and a heretical statement to make in a culture that has embraced the idea that all people basically worship the same God in different ways. That's the air that we breathe. Everyone worships the same God in their own ways. Just recently, in the last month, the conflict over this exclusive claim has garnered some national headlines. Wheaton College is a confessional evangelical institution in the Chicago area of Illinois. They are a conservative, again, confessional institution that prides itself really on being the Harvard of evangelical institutions. In other words, they they like to say, I might dispute this because I'm a Southern alum, but they like to say we are the Ivy League of evangelical institutions and they are indeed a very solid institution. This last month, they had a professor who wanted to show her support for her Muslim neighbors by wearing a hijab, the head covering that Muslim women wear. Not a problem there. No problem at all. Show your solidarity. Support your neighbors. They are your neighbors. 
They are made in the image of God. But she also, at the same time, put out a statement that said that Christians and Jews and Muslims all worship the same God in different ways. Well, this clearly runs against Wheaton's confessional statement. And so they suspended her for the time being to do an investigation, to get clarification, and after an extensive review, they are moving to terminate her contract. Lots of news about this, lots of buzz, lots of misinformation out there about it. This last week, she released a theological statement of sorts seeking to clarify her position. But in my judgment, the only thing it did was to highlight how even in evangelical conservative circles, the exclusivity of Christ is not a popular position to hold. She said in her statement, to clarify, among other things, when I say that we worship the same God, I am saying that when pious Muslims pray, they are addressing the one true God. And that God is simply God. The problem with this position is that it fails to recognize that the Bible has a category called idolatry. And idolatry is a deviation from worshiping the true God. And idolatry is something where you can call something or you can call someone God and just because you're saying this is God doesn't make it so. Furthermore, if you continue to read through this Gospel, Jesus says very clearly that if you're not worshiping Him, it's not as though you're still worshiping God just in an erroneous way. You're not worshiping God at all. He says in John 5.23, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father, God, who sent Him. It says in John 5.38, speaking to the Jews who were trying to kill Him, you do not believe, you do not have His Word abiding in you for, here's the reason, you don't believe in the One whom He sent. John 8.42, again speaking to the Jews, if God were your Father, you would love Me. For I am from God and I am. Jesus is telling the Jews, the Jews who had the prophets, who had the covenants, who had the promises, who had the law, who had the temple and the very means by which to worship the true God. He's saying to them, you don't know God. You don't have 
God. You don't honor God. And the reason why is because you don't know me and are seeking to kill me. We are, as Christians, to love our Jewish neighbors. We are to love our Buddhist neighbors. We are to love with a sacrificial love our Muslim neighbors. Not fear them. The call for us is to love them. But by no means does that entail sacrificing who God is revealed in Jesus on the altar of American pluralism. Truth, truth is not in conflict with love. Love honors the truth. And John wants us to know from the very beginning the truth about Jesus. He is distinct from God. He is God. And therefore, to worship God is to worship the Son. Finally, if there is any confusion over whether or not Jesus has always existed, or whether or not He is the Creator, John seeks to remove any confusion in verses 2 and 3. He says there, He was in the beginning with God. Again, a statement right after He was God given to us in order to distinguish again that Jesus is a distinct person. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Now if you ever have the privilege, and it is a privilege, to come across a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, for example, they will tell you, they will seek to reason with you and explain to you that Jesus has not, though they believe in Jesus, they say, has not always existed. They give different accounts of how He came into existence, but they both say that Jesus Himself, the Son, the Word, was created by the Father. Certainly, before creation began, but nevertheless, He was created. There was an ancient heresy called Arianism. Again, we've got modalism, now Arianism. Taught the very same thing. The Arians had a saying. There was a time when the sun was not. That was like their bumper sticker. And for a very long time, that position was actually the dominant position in the church. It was because of faithful men of God seeking to reason with the leaders of the church. Men like Athanasius, constantly going back to the Scriptures and saying, we cannot deny what is here that the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity eventually 
prevailed. But nevertheless, Arianism is what Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses teach to this day. And they will take you to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, to try to prove this point as well. And generally, generally, it will be by telling you that in the Greek, John chapter 1 teaches that Jesus was a God. Little g. A God. Not God, but a God. That's what the Greek says. Well, I want to assure you this morning that if you have ever heard that, or if you ever hear that in the future, you should not be afraid one bit because they don't know Greek. That's not what it says. But more importantly, more importantly, you don't need Greek to know that they're wrong. Reason why? You have verse 3. Verse 3 rules out any possibility for Jesus having a beginning. John says, all things were made through Him. But then notice what he adds. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Now what is that second part adding to the verse except to say that Jesus is not a created being. That He is not a creature. John is saying there is a category of made things. Right? Anything that was made. This is the category. And Jesus made all of that. Which puts Him outside of the category of made things. You don't need, you don't need Greek. You've got context. You've got verse 3 that teaches us very clearly that Jesus is the Creator and as the Creator, He has always been. So with verse 3, John summarizes his points. Verses 1 and 2. Jesus is the Creator. He has always existed. And therefore, what what we should be fully aware of as we begin His Gospel is that this man was indeed and is God. The grammar of these verses is some of the simplest grammar you could ever read. In fact, beginning Greek students cut their teeth on John because it is so simple. But the truths contained in them are enough to satisfy the thirsty for eternity. The depths that they travel cannot be measured. John wants it to be that way for a reason. He begins with seemingly incomprehensible truths. Again, the Trinity revealed in verse 1 and 2. He begins with these seemingly incomprehensible truths that reach all the way into the heights of heaven and all the way back into eternity. So that when He brings us back down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt 
among us. That truth has a seismic impact that registers a 10.0 magnitude on our spiritual Richter scales. He wants us to feel the weight of that reality, of that glory of Christ. This gospel's purpose is to do just that. Bring us into the heights of heaven so that when we come down to the man Jesus, we are at His feet worshiping. So, I want us to pray continually that as we go through this book together, that intended purpose that John so clearly says at the end of the Gospel, that we might believe if we have never believed before, and that we might continue to believe if we have believed before, that purpose might be fulfilled in us. Let me pray for us now. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And more than anything, Lord, we thank You that though we deserved only judgment, You have given us grace upon grace. Though we deserved only the condemnation of the law, in Christ there is for us grace and truth. Lord, I pray that as we together go through this Gospel and we hear this good news, Father, our hearts would be completely devoted to You and Your will. Just as Jesus, the Son, delighted in only doing what He saw the Father do. Father, may that be true of us. That our will and our affections be set on Your will and Your desires so that in Christ we might know You by the power of the Spirit and worship You in grace and truth. And I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus.